Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What can we learn from the defeat of the Industrial Relations Act of 1971? Capitalist commentators often refer to the 1970s as a kind of dark age and accuse socialists of wanting to return to it. What they're frightened of is the huge power of the working class that fought and often won during that decade. One major victory was the defeat of the Tories' 1971 Industrial Relations Act, an attempt to smash the power of the shop floor union reps. Unofficial strikes and mass resistance made the act unenforceable. Why did workers have such power in the 1970s? Can that be replicated? What was behind the bosses' attack on their wages and conditions? And can the anti-union laws that shackle workers today be overcome? This episode of Socialism looks at the 50th anniversary of the 1971 Industrial Relations Act, how workers beat anti-union laws. This year is the 50th anniversary of the notorious 1971 Industrial Relations Act, which was an anti-trade union law that attempted to break the power of organised workers in Britain, but was defeated by the same power of those workers. And joining us here today to discuss that fantastic period of British history in the workers' movement is Bill Mullins, who was a shop steward at the time, a trade union rep working in the automotive industry, and subsequently was a full-time trade union organiser for the Socialist Party. Hello, Bill. Hello there. So the first question which I think might interest our listeners today is that Jeremy Corbyn and other parts of the left were often attacked as wanting to take Britain back to the 1970s. What is it that frightens the capitalists about the 1970s? Yes, that's a very good question to start with. And I've been thinking about it because both in the politics and even in culture, you get references to the 1970s on television as the bad old days in inverted commas. And it's a given that that's the way they describe the 70s, the commentators on television and that. And one indication of the changes to the 1970s that I was thinking about was that all of the main daily papers, the right-wing papers, the liberal press like the Guardian Independent, and the TV and the rest of the media, there is hardly, if any, journalists that are dedicated to following the ins and outs of what's going on in the trade union movement in the modern era. And that's not a mistake. And to many of them, the idea of their readers being interested in the trade unions is a book sealed with seven seals as far as they're concerned. And it's the same at a local level. And yet I distinctly remember back in the 1970s and into the 80s, the even papers like the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, had journalists called Woodrow Wyatt, He was a Labour politician before he became a journalist, who, as it turned out later, he was directly an agent, in fact, of the state, of the MI5 in particular, and he would often write columns, quite lengthy columns, of who he thinks trade union members should vote for in union elections. It doesn't exist now, that sort of level of fact. And you've got to ask yourself, if an enemy, in this case the bosses, are so concerned as they were about what was going on in the trade unions, then obviously the working class and its mass organisation of trade unions were on the right lines. And I'd compare, for example, the attitude of people like Woodrow Wyatt, who in the predecessor 
of the PCS union, the Civil Service Union, we used to be called the CPSA, they used to regularly attack the left, and in particular they attacked the militants, as we were called them days, in the CPSA when we were standing for elections for the leadership of the Civil Service Union. And that was a time where it was absolutely vital from the interests of the ruling class of the bosses that they did take cognizance of what was happening inside the unions. And when you look back to the 70s, it wasn't just the national press. It was all the local papers, I remember in particular, the Birmingham Evening Mail, which was obviously a daily paper. It was the most well-read paper in the Midlands at that particular time, probably the highest-reading local paper in the country outside of London. And that was all the time foaming at the mouth about what was going on inside the workplace, particularly in the car industry, which I was involved in in the early 70s at that particular time. And even before I became a shop steward in 1969, I joined the car factory, the Rover in Solihull, in 1968, and I became a shop steward a year later. And I was told by people who was already active who were shop stewards that a couple of years before that, the Sunday Times had sent an insight team into the Rover factory in Solihull to find out where the real power was in our factory at that particular time. And they wrote quite a lengthy which many of the shop stewards still used to refer to. They had cuttings on the union office wall in the factory of the Sunday Times articles about what they thought about the Rover Shop Stewards Committee and the toings and goings at that time. And that gives you an indication of what it was like in the car industry. But what did frighten the capitalists primarily about the 1970s? Well, in a word or two words, it was workers' power. The working class was organised like never before. Even in the height of the trade unionism, for instance, after the First World War, where the unions in Britain reached about 8 million strong, by the 1970s, the trade unions had reached probably 12 to 13 million, certainly 12 million in unions that were affiliated to the TUC. But more than the numerical power of the trade unions, it was the growth of the shop stewards movement which had taken place that was always been commentated on by the capitalist press. And the shop stewards, after all, you know, and we've got shop stewards today, of course. But what was different then is the shop stewards, which had developed in the manufacturing industry. And remember, in the 1960s and 1970s, there was 8 million workers in Britain worked in manufacturing, compared to, say, 2.6 million, I think the figure is now. And the number of people that working in manufacturing was also the fact that many of the factories were very, very big. For instance, I seen a figure a few years ago that there was over 2,000 factories in Britain in the 1970s which had at least 2,000 or more workers in each of those workplaces. And some of the bigger workplaces, like the Dagenham Ford Works or the Longbridge Ford Works or even our own Solihull Works, where there was tens of thousands of workers organised and there was a generally a feature that the most left-wing factors at that time were the bigger factors, and that's because, if you like, that it was the most politically conscious people in those factories on the shop floor who tended to come to the leadership of the shop stewards committees in those factories for obvious reasons. They were more concentrated, and they had a lot more power as far as that's concerned. So there was 350,000 shop stewards developed by the 1970s in the big workplaces and increasingly in the public sector and amongst white-collar workers as well. It was replicated, there was the beginnings of mass growth of trade unions. 
For instance, Newpy, the National Union of Public Employees, which had about 60,000 members in 1969, by 1979, it had grown by tenfold as the low-paid so-called dirty jobs workers joined the trade unions and they were replicating the lessons that they'd seen despite the attacks by the press on the shop stewards movement. They were replicating in their own workplaces what was happening in the manufacturing, in factories, in the car industry and things like that. So I think that that's what frightened the capitalists. That's why they refer to the 70s as a dark time. It certainly was a dark time for them. Because what did it mean to have an organised workplace? Because, for instance, in our place, we used to use the term quite regularly of mutuality. And all that meant was, is that from the foreman up, all levels of management, they couldn't do anything without our agreement, i.e. the shop stewards. They couldn't get things done on the shop floor without first asking our agreement. There had to be mutual agreement as far as that's concerned. There was a level of works control which really hasn't been seen since then. And to the eternal frustration of management, that we blocked them often if we didn't consider it in the interest of the membership that we represented to actually allow these changes to take place. They were seething. The capitalist press used to openly refer to it as it was a negation of the management's right to manage. Well, what did it mean at the end of the day? It meant that the workers through their shop stewards were able to express their right to have some say and control of the workplace. And in the modern epoch, in the last 12 months, what have we seen? We've seen an attempt by workers, particularly in the health service and elsewhere, to have a say over what is safe in the workplace, to have proper PPE, personal protective equipment. The teachers and the education workers are saying, why should we go into a school if we feel it's unsafe? Because of the threat to the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. That's a small indication of what it was generally like in the car industry and engineering and manufacturing in general back in the early 70s as far as works control and the right to actually oppose what's called the dictatorship of the management on the shop floor. It was an equaling out of power organised through the shop stewards movement. And, of course, the shop stewards themselves in general were subject to recall, instant recall. You didn't have to wait for once every five-year vote, you do for Parliament, decide who your government. The workers locally could immediately remove their shop steward if they thought the shop steward wasn't up to the job, wasn't doing as they thought was in their best interests. So I think that's the broad explanation of the difference of why the 70s is referred to in such a derisory fashion by the modern commentators who obviously represent the interests of the establishment rather than the interests of the mass of ordinary people. So the workers were well organised and were able to take action, take strike action if necessary, to defend their interests. But the British capitalists were actually attacking workers' paying conditions around this time, weren't they? And provoking big strikes. Why was that? Well, probably that's the most searching question of all. Because, you know, if you go back before the 70s, in the 1950s, just after the war, there was a general acceptance by most wings of the bosses, most wings of the capitalist class of what was necessary to ameliorate and, if you like, make concessions to the working class without having to confront the working class. That was even given a name called Butskillism, where Butler was the Tory Chancellor of the Exchequer and Gageguilt was the leader of the Labour Party. And there was an agreement, really, in the 1950s, following the Second World War, 
that on the basis of the economy was slowly but surely every year expanding, growing by 1%, 2 or 3%. Generally, there wasn't any real slumps and recessions. And there was a general acceptance that concessions could be made because capitalism could afford it. But by the 1970s, British capitalism had found itself increasingly up against international competitors. And they were finding increasingly that they were losing their share of the world market to various capitalists. And Trotsky, even before this in the 1920s, after the events of the First World War, Trotsky commented that the Spanish Empire took hundreds of years to decline the influence of Spain on a world scale. But in Britain, the British capitalism influence and importance in the world was declining in a matter of decades. And they were more and more increasingly faced with the problems of international competition. And the primary reason for that is particularly following the Second World War, with the obviously physical destruction that the war caused, but also the massive neglect of ordinary production, as most of production had been moved to war production, the ruling class after the Second World War accepted that the basic industries, coal, steel, energy and things like that, that actually propped up the rest of industry, had been so left to rot, there had been absolute lack of investment whatsoever, that they were prepared to accept the nationalisation by the 1945 Labour government of things like coal, things like steel, things like transport, the rail industry, and things like that. And as long as, of course, the capitalists who owned those companies, who owned those private industries, were more than healthily compensated, overcompensated, as a matter of fact, when the Labour government nationalised those particular industries, because they understood capitalism, that they had to allow these industries to be remodernised at the expense of the state, or at the expense of the taxpayer, and most taxes are paid by ordinary working people. They were able to modernise those industries and prop up those industries so they could prop up the rest of basic manufacturing. And the car industry was an example of that. I remember when I joined the Rover Car Company, in 1968, it was a private company. But by the time of the first Labour government in 1974, Rover, which had been pushed into a merger of British Leyland by the Labour government of Wilson since 1968, was still in massive decline. And British Leyland, which Rover was part of, which had 57 factories, it was made up of all sorts of bits and pieces. The modern car industry, for example, there's four major plants in Britain, Toyota, Datsun, Nissan, and one other, mainly Japanese companies, but they mainly assemble cars. In the 1970s, the car industry in Britain primarily wasn't the assembly plants, it was primarily all the other small plants that made up the component parts of that. And you know, the average car in them days had 2,000 separate pieces, and British Leyland had 57 factories including the big factories like ours and like Longbridge, like Cowley down in Oxford. And the Wilson Labour government had promoted the idea of bringing those factories under the wing of Leyland, which is a private company, and he promoted the merger of Leyland. But British Leyland by 1974 still hadn't had any real investment. And we were faced at that time with a Labour government being asked by Lord Stokes, who was the managing director of British Leyland, for subsidies. He was asking for, I think it was about £200 million in subsidies to actually carry on the process of making British Leyland some form of success against its international competitors. 
It used to have 40% of the British market, but by 1974, 75, it had fell to about 20% of the British market. So in general, there was an attempt by British capitalism and through its governments, whether it was Tory or Labour, to modernise industry. But the primary role in the modernisation, for instance, of the car industry, British Leyland, wasn't so much to invest it, but was to actually carry through the process of what they call rationalisation, and in fact, factory closures. And for instance, in Halfland, in Sully Hall, it was built actually just before the war, the first factory, it was called a shadow factory. And then after the Second World War, it started to build Land Rovers, which were a success. And then he started to build cars. But there was a general process in industry of rationalisation. For instance, in the coal industry, where there used to be a million miners in the 1940s, by the 1970s, at the time of the beginnings of the first big strikes in the coal industry, when people like Scargill came to the fore, the coal industry had fell to about 300,000 workers. And it was under both Tories and Labour governments that this rationalisation of the coal industry took place. It was the same in steel industry. It was the same in the rail industry, the famous or the infamous beaching cuts in the British Rail. And all those things are done as the capitalist governments of Labour and Tory variety attempted to make their economy more fit for the modern world as far as they were concerned. And of course, that took investment and the capitalists themselves wasn't prepared to invest. Now, that's a long about way of asking why did capitalists attack workers' paying conditions? And the main reason for that is because the capitalists found themselves all the time, every time they tried to carry through this rationalisation of industry, these closures in effect and cutbacks of jobs, coming up against the well-organised workplaces led by the shop stewards committees. And that was the main reason they wanted to introduce some form of legislation that actually took the power away from the shop stewards and put it back into the hands of the national officials and truth was, a lot of the national officials were in favour of that. And we'll come to later this question of the Labour government was the first government to attempt to legally curtail the power of the workers. And when they failed in 1968 with a piece of legislation called In Place of Strife, it was left up to the Tory government at Ted Heath in 1970, which is what this discussion is all about. So the capitalists in Britain had failed to invest in things like machinery and new processes and were therefore being outcompeted by other capitalist powers and their industries, Germany in particular, but others around the world. And therefore, in order to be able to continue to advance their profits, they had to break the power of the organised workers because they were threatening jobs, they were threatening pay, threatening conditions in order to compete with those other capitalist powers. Is that right? I mean, I'll give you an example in the car industry. By the 1970s, in a pamphlet that we produced when I had joined the militants in 1974 and we wrote material in it, the Japanese car industry, the upcoming Japanese car industry, had seven times as much investments per worker than the British car industry in the British Leyland. And Ford, even in Britain, had three times the investment per worker the British Leyland had. The British Leyland, under private industry, had just been left to decline completely. There'd been hardly any investment and whatever small profits they were making was kept by the shareholders and not by this. And so the capitalists as a class were not prepared to carry out investment and modernise British Leyland as an example. And instead, they had to take on the workers. And they did that using legislation such as in place of strife or attempted to by the Labour government and later on by Ted Heath's government with the Industrial Relations Act 
They attempted to bind hand and foot with legal hoops of steel the organised working class and the shop stewards committees. Now, you've mentioned a number of times so far the shop stewards, the shop stewards committees. There was a phenomenon at this time called the shop stewards movement. What does that refer to? Well, that's interesting. And again, I can use my own example or what I know about it. It wasn't so much referred to as a shop stewards movement. It was referred to as, well, first of all, by the capitalist pressures, the shop stewards in the workplaces have got too much power and they're all mad. That's exactly what they were saying. But the shop stewards movement was a movement which was organised from below. It was an organic expression of the need by the organised workers in the workplaces to actually counter the power of the local management. And that was expressed, for instance, in our factory, where there was 8,000 workers in our factory and eight unions, though the Transport and General Workers Union, which I was a member of, was the bulk of the membership. They organised the workers on the assembly lines. The smaller unions, the engineering union and things like that, they'd organised the maintenance and the till rooms and things like that. But our shop stewards committee, all eight unions came together once a week we called it the Confederated Shop Stewards Committee. There was 300 of us, over 300 shop stewards. We met regularly, every week, and we discussed things that were common to all of us. For instance, we were part of what was called the British Leyland Combine Shop Stewards Committee, where we sent delegates to the British Leyland Combine Stewards Conferences, which elected an executive committee. And I was a member of the executive committee, at one stage of the British Leyland Combine when I became a senior steward in the plant. Not all the 57 factories of British Leyland sent delegates to the shop stewards combine. But the main thing about the shop stewards, for instance, my union rule book, the Transport and General Union rule book, there was hardly any reference to what a shop steward was. It didn't exist as far as a union rule. The rule book had millions of rules, it seemed, on everything about how to run a union branch. But there was nothing about the shop steward except it was mentioned the shop steward was somebody who collected union dues. This is before the checkoff system existed where they deducted it from workers paid the weekly union dues. And the shop stewards committee grew up without the official endorsement of the national unions. And there was combined committees in British Leyland, in Lucas. And by the way, as we've discussed, and the papers carried articles on this, the socialist paper, an article on the Lucas plan, which was developed by the Lucas Combine Committee, the Aerospace Committee. There was a Combine Committee in the Ford's factory, or Ford's factories, that linked up the Dagenham factory in London with the Merseyside factory, and things of that nature. There was big companies like the General Electric Corporation, GEC, an American company, but it had lots of factories in Britain, and it had a Combine Committee. And there was generally a development towards a natural movement as far as the ordinary workers are concerned, that they elected a steward. The stewards elected the senior stewards and conveners in the plants, and the shop stewards committees in the plants elected delegates to the combine committees. And all the time, this is about what do we have in common between the plants. We've all got our individual problems. We've all got our individual issues. But things, for instance, like wages, how were they negotiated? In British Leyland, because it was a company that had been merged over a long period of time, I think there was something like 500 separate wage negotiations across the 57 factories representing different groups of workers in these factories. And so there was an attempt, certainly under the British Leyland Combine, and for instance, we attempted by moving resolutions through the Rover Shop Stewards Committee that went to the British Leyland Combine, 
calling for national negotiation controlled by the shop stewards, national negotiations for wages, where we said that we should aim for whatever was the highest level of wages in the best paid factory as a standard we achieved to try and get for all the 57 factories. So we sought to actually develop these arguments about wages, about work conditions, and that was replicated across industry in general, not all at the same pace or all at the same level of organisation. It all depended, and it often depended, upon who was the leadership to these particular plants. And for instance, and we'll come on to this in a minute, the political leadership, and if there was a political leadership, many of the times indeed, it was often those who came to the fore. Who were the people who thought the longer term? Who were the people on the shop floor, the shop stewards, committees, the conveners, the senior stewards, who had a perspective for what was like to develop? How was we going to prepare our members to take the struggles forward? Those of us in British Leyland, we know what was going to happen. We could see the writing on the wall. We could see what the Tory governments did or wanted to do. And even the Labour government in 1974 to 79, when the Labour government was in power, we could see what they were trying to do. And for example, in our plant or in our combine, the British Leyland combine, the Labour government had persuaded, probably didn't take much persuasion, the national officials that represented the unions in the British Leyland plants to say that it was a time to end conflict. And therefore, they introduced a scheme called the Participation Scheme. And the Participation Scheme was where the shop stewards were brought together in joint committees with management, and they were given plans by the management of what the plans were for those factories. But the constitution of the Participation Committees meant that they were sworn to commercial secrecy, that they couldn't tell the members... And so, for instance, in our factory, and our factory was a big factory, but it wasn't a total factory. There was 200,000 workers in the British land plants at that time. And our factory was the only factory who totally opposed participation. And that was down primarily to the CP leadership of the British Land Combine, the Communist Party of Great Britain's leadership. People like Derek Robinson was the convener of the biggest plant in British Land, in Longbridge, in Birmingham. They had 30,000 workers in that plant. And he was the convener of that plant and he was the chairman of the combine. And the CP's position in British Leyland was that when British Leyland was nationalised by a Labour government in 1975, and they wanted to make British Leyland a success within the framework of British capitalism as a nationalised company. And we warned that was bound to fail, that what the capitalists wanted to do was run down British Leyland because of its inability to compete with its international competitors. And they would use the participation committees to actually get the stamp of approval from the trade unions for the carrying through of job cuts, the carrying through of plant closures. And unfortunately, and we put all this in writing, and we warned that through the shop stewards committee, and by then I joined the militants, and I was writing in our weekly paper about these things, me and other people who supported the militants at that time in the car factories. We were writing about this warning that the CP leadership, you know, we didn't put it in those terms, he said the combine committee leadership, by going on ahead with participation, was going down the road of collaborating with management's plans to effectively cut jobs, hold back wages and close plants. And unfortunately, all that came to be. And by the time that the Thatcher came to power in 1979, it was a quite easy job for her to carry through the US attacks but we were the only plant in the whole of British Leyland that refused to enter the participation committee. In fact, the managing director of British Leyland at that time was the joint chairman of the National Participation Committee of British Leyland. 
And who was the other joint chairman? Derek Robinson. And Red Robinson, as he was called by the press, was sacked later by the Thatcher government, in effect, by Mike Lebs, who became the British Leyland Managing Director. And he was sacked, even though he had gone along with this idea, and the CP in general had gone along with the idea of accepting the ideas of collaboration, of partnership, in effect, with British Leyland. And that was because of this lack of a perspective that the CP were the main left-wing force inside the car factories of British Leyland. It didn't mean they were a big party, it just meant they had, you know, important figures in the plants, like Derek Robinson and others, and they ended up, you know, saying that they had to create the conditions for a model nationalised plant in a sea of capitalism, as we call it, and it's impossible as far as that's concerned. So the shop stewards' committees and the shop stewards' movement, as it's referred to, was really all about that. But the main thing about a shop stewards' movement is that, in general... The average shop steward in the manufacturing, it isn't always the case perhaps in white-collar industries, but certainly in manufacturing, the bulk of the shop stewards were answerable and subject to instant recall. And, of course, only had the average wage of the members that they represented. I was a senior steward for eight years, and I had the same wages that I had when I was on the shop floor, working on the car tracks. So the shop stewards' movement was much closer to the shop floor and the interest of the shop floor than the national full-time officials or even the local full-time officials who were involved. And that's interesting because today there are some on the left who argue that a kind of bottom-up, grassroots-only workplace organising, that that's the way to do things instead of trying to mobilise big national trade union struggle, which often comes up against bureaucrats, like you've mentioned, locally and nationally, who are unwilling to lead a fight. I mean, do you think that's right? And were the national unions not important back then? Well, of course there was. Unfortunately, too often in the negative, <laughs> they were important. When Derek Robinson got the sack in 1979, after all, he was the convener of the biggest plant in Britain, the Longbridge plant, which is as big as Dagenham anyway, at that particular time, 30 or 40,000 workers. And he was the chairman of the British Leyland Combine, the biggest combine of shop stewards in the country. He was seen, in the words of the Times, at the time, in an editorial of the Times, as the most decisive shop floor battle since the Second World War. That's how the Times described it. When he was sacked by Michael Edwards, who'd been brought in, unfortunately, by a Labour government, and then continued as a British Leyland bus under Maggie Thatcher, and he carried through the sacking of Derek Robinson, and the engineering union, which was Derek Robinson's union, the president of that union was a right-winger called Duffy, I remember him, happened to be from Birmingham, and he was the president of the union, it was a big union, and when Jerry Robert was sacked, 50,000 workers, including our factory, came out on strike. We could understand, and our workers understood, this was an attack not just upon one man, but it was an attack upon the whole trade union organisation of British Leyland. And when he came out, Duffy, the leader of the engineering union, told all his members to go back. And they were completely stunned, first of all, in the Longbridge plant, but also our own members were completely stunned. And they told them to go back to work while they conducted an investigation into the sacking of Derek Robinson. And three months later, after, you know, when everybody was back at work and the investigation was conducted, they came out, yes, he was unfairly sacked, but he'd done something wrong, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, of course, most workers had gone back and the capitalist press, particularly the Birmingham Mail, had done a real dirty job on Derek Robinson and the shop stewards moving in, in reality, and whipped up real reaction against the whole idea of people coming out and strike. 
So, you know, it's the old saying, if you strike while the iron's hot, or you're losing. So the workers voted against going on strike again. So there wasn't the national officials and the local officials. One of the things that the Wilson government did before it introduced its anti-union legislation, which failed to get off the books in place of strife in 1968, one of the things they did was set up a commission of inquiry into industrial relations, in inverted commas, in industry. And that was called the Donovan Inquiry after this chairman. And he revealed that in the car industry, 99% of all strikes had been called by the shop stewards. In other words, they were unofficial. And they didn't have the sanction of the national officials. And it's true, because nobody looked for the sanction of the national officials. When I had strikes in our plant, I called the shop stewards together. We'd have a debate on the issue, whatever the issue was. If we agreed that unless the management retreated, then we'd adopt a resolution, and then we'd call a mass meeting. And I had a permanent platform of loudspeakers set up just outside my office with a raised stage. Actually, the stage was on wheels. <laughs> and we used to wheel it to the appropriate part of the factory where we conduct a mass meeting. And we used to say to the manager, move all them cars on the final lines. So they've got wheels on those so they can be pushed to one side. And we gather all 4,000 workers together into a mass meeting. And I put the recommendation of the shop stewards committee to the gathered mass meeting few questions would be asked. Generally, there wasn't many questions because before the mass meeting took place, the stewards had gone back to their own sections and told the workers in their sections what the mass meeting was going to be about and what they were being asked to vote on. They came together in a mass meeting and voted accordingly. And in general, I can't remember once when they ever went against what we was recommending. So the management knew that when we said to them, unless you do this, this and this, we'll call a mass meeting and recommend strike action, they knew we was people of our word and we'd do it. And that was common. I'm not just saying it was happening in our factory, but mass meetings are the traditional way of getting the approval or otherwise of the shaft law. And, of course, that was generally about industrial issues. So, for instance, before I was in the Transport and General Workers Union, I was in the National Union of Vehicle Builders, which later merged with the TNG, became part of the TNG. And the National Union of Vehicle Builders, we had local officials. One of them, I remember, was George Evans. And he used to ring up our convener. We had senior students like myself... I was the senior steward of the SD1 plant, which was where we made the cars, but it was the senior steward of the Land Rover plant and the senior steward of the Range Rover plant, and we were all on the same site, so we come together as joint shop stewards committees. And George Evans, the full-time official, used to ring up my convener, Joe Harris, and say, Joe, what's going on? Anything I should know about? And Joe would say, ah, lads, what shall I tell him? We should tell him nothing. <laughs> and it was management who generally rang him up and said, we've got problems, and they're on strike again. What are you going to do about it, George? And he'd ring us up plaintively and ask us, what's going on? So we'd tell him. Generally, he wasn't called in. Sometimes he was called in for formalising factory-wide agreements that we had to get the stamp of the union authorising the agreement on. But in general, as Lloyd Donovan said, 99% of all strikes were called by the stewards and not by the officials at that particular time. So you can imagine there was a certain resentment amongst the national officials about what was happening. But there is a benefit, isn't there, to taking control of the national union as well and organising locally isn't on its own an answer to all these problems, is it? Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, that was your original question. Yes, I was talking about what it was like then. And, of course, we never lost sight, those of us who were political, of the importance of the national unions, particularly for the politics of the union movement, particularly in its relationship with the Labour Party. And, of course, the 1970s ended with defeating of the Tory government in its attempt to introduce anti-union legislation. 
but it ended with the political defeat of the working class with the coming to power of Thatcher. That's primarily because the Labour government between 74 and 75, with the approval of the national officials, had more and more come out against the interests of the trade union movement. You know, they had pay policy, which tried to restrict wages to 5% when inflation was running at 20 to 25% a year at that particular time. So there was, at that stage, there was more rationale then about the idea that you could conduct things through purely industrial struggle than anything else. But, of course, those of us who understood, as I came to understand later after joining the military, but even before that, we understood the need we could see the link between the trade unions and politics, the trade unions and the Labour Party. Now, in the modern era, it is a little bit different. Well, it's quite a bit different. It's true that, for example, most particularly now with all the anti-union legislation about, there's hardly ever any unofficial strikes anywhere. There's been a few walkouts over the question of health and safety and personal protective equipment, but they're very small in number. So the role of the national unions in that sense, dialectically, is more important because of the weakness of the organisation under shelf law. And therefore, you have to strive to actually win to left policies, to socialist policies, the national unions, both from an industrial point of view and also from a political point of view. So there is a difference. Now, those who attempt, particularly after the experience of Corbyn, and I know what you're getting at, some on the left who were in the Labour Party and have become demoralised with the defeat of Corbynism, they're expressing views which I characterise as syndicalist, that they're basically saying that what we have to do now is to rebuild up the shelf law and that we can ignore politics and therefore we can ignore what our national officials do in our name as regards politics. But we can see with what Starmer's doing, with his open attempt and successful attempts up to now to take the Labour Party back to being the second eleven of capitalism as far as their governments are concerned, that there is more important than ever that we strive to actually, you know, the left and the socialists to win influence and win control of the national unions. That's why we put people up like Hugo Pierre in unison for general secretaries with a fighting programme and things like that. So it's wrong for people to say we can turn away from politics because Corbynism has been defeated. In some ways, it's more important than ever. But they have to raise a direction that you can't put your political efforts into the Labour Party you have to now look to create the conditions where the working class, particularly the organised working class, do have a political representation. And that requires a new mass workers party. And that requires, the, for instance, our attempt to carry through an electoral challenge using the trade union and socialist coalition, albeit small as it is. Nevertheless, with important allies like the RMT in the union, it's more important than ever that we give that political voice to the trade union movement. And it's the wrong time more than ever to turn away from politics, as some seem to advocate. And also, from an industrial point of view, it's the condition of weakness, unfortunately, too many times. And that the anti-union laws do have a huge blocking effect upon the workers taking direct action in the workplace. But I don't think it'll remain like that forever. I think that the conditions are developing, particularly now with the effects of the pandemic on employment and on wages and conditions like that, the capitalists will attempt to make the working class pay for the crisis of COVID, for the huge amounts of public money the capitalists have spent in trying to maintain some form of economy by various propping up schemes that they've had to do. They will attempt to take those things back off the working class and they will attempt to do that through cuts in wages, cuts in jobs, plant closures, workplace closures 
and all the rest of it. It'll be more important than ever that we turn and demand that the national unions take direct action. And whereas in the 70s, inherent within the situation at that stage, particularly over things like the Industrial Relations Act, was a general strike, there was a debate that we had at the time, unbeknownst to me, by the way, I wasn't in the member of the militant at that time, but we were having the same debate in the car factory that the fight in the Industrial Relations Act would require generalised action across the piece of all the unions coming together. And we called for that and we organised for that and we took that action in December the 8th, 1970, when we had an unofficial semi-general strike. We participated in it. Then later on in days of action between January and March of 1971, there was unofficial strikes took place. We took unofficial strikes against growing unemployment by the late 70s as Labour was allowing the economy to slip. So yes, there was always an attempt to turn the organised working class and see the importance of national unionism. But it is, ironically, more important than ever that we put real demands on the national unions to become fighting organisations on behalf of the working class. So the first attempt to break the power of the shop floor at that time was Labour's so-called in place of strife. I don't know if it ever became a law. It was kind of a white paper before it you know, never really entered into reality, did it? And that was followed after that was defeated by the Industrial Relations Act in 1971. And during this time, you had the shop stewards movement. You had socialist groups in the workplaces, including the Communist Party of Great Britain and then later on the militants, nowadays called the Socialist Party. So could you maybe give us a quick rundown of how those two things were fought in the workplace? Yes, I've partially been referring to it. It is good that we sort of draw the timeline to give some outline of what was happening. I mean, in 1966, the Labour government introduced the Donovan Report about who was running things on the shelf floor. And in 1968, the Labour government attempted to use in place of strife. And in place of strife in particular, talked about imprisoning shop stewards who refused to carry out the instructions of their national unions, who acted outside, I can't remember the wording of it, but the irony is, and those of you who've seen the film recently, Dagenham, about the women workers' strikes in the sewing rooms of Dagenham in the Ford factory, for equal pay, the Labour government was in power, this is 1968, and the Minister of Employment was Barbara Castle. And Barbara Castle was the one chosen by Harold Wilson to introduce in place of strife. So she was the one in the legislation that come on the idea of threatening to imprison shop stewards across the board if they refused to carry through the rules of in place of strife, the law which must have included that only national unions could call strikes. And if shop stewards' committees caused strikes, then the whole of the shop stewards' committee could be locked up. And it was at that time that the Communist Party formed the Liaison Committee for Defence and Trade Unions, and they began to agitate through their members, and they had, you know, a number of important people in the workplace at shop floor level about the idea of fighting in place of strife. And it was successful. And the union leaders, in general, found themselves in the position of massive pressure from below through the stewards' movement and the organised working class in general, to oppose the Labour government's attempts. And that was manifested in the Labour cabinet at the time, with Harry Wilson and Barbara Castle on one side, and on the other side, in opposition to in place of strife, was people like Callaghan, who later became the Prime Minister and Labour leader. And James Callaghan used to be the General Secretary 
of the IRSF, the Income and Revenue Staffs Federation, which is now part of the PCS. And he opposed it. And people like Tony Benn, he was on the Labour cabinet. He was originally in support of inflation trial, but eventually he opposed it. So the pressure from below, through the working class, through the stewards movement, and onto the national officials, and then, in their case, into the Labour Party and the leadership of the Labour cabinet, they voted down in place of strike because there'd been a whole number of unofficial strikes to one degree or another throughout 1968, 69 and into the early part of 1970. But in June 1970, the Tories came to power and they introduced what they called the Industrial Relations Bill where they had the same threat about imprisoning shop stewards if they failed to carry through the dictates of what became the Industrial Relations Court, which was chaired by a bloke called Donaldson, later became the lead judge of the Appeal Court, but his first job, or one of his first jobs, was chair of the Industrial Relations Court. And the Industrial Relations Court was set up as part of the legislation of the Industrial Relations Act. But we in the movement from below, through the shop stewards movement, we totally opposed that. We took it personal, the threat of locking up the shop stewards. And so we have seen that the placards that were made at the time showed a cartoon of a shop steward behind prison bars, and it was called the Kill the Bill Demonstrations killed the bill. I didn't take it personal. That's what it meant. And those demonstrations was first of all unofficial, called by the Liaison Committee for Defence and Trade Unions throughout the late 60s, also into the 70s. Unbeknownst to me, I was reading all about it because I used to buy the Morning Star every day off one of my fellow shop stewards. That was a daily paper to accomplish. But the militant, I believe, was about, but I hadn't come across it. I think it was only a monthly by then. It was still growing, the militant, but at that stage, as I say, the main left force, if you can call it that, inside the Shropshire's movement was the Communist Party and its daily paper, the Morning Star. And it did show the importance of that paper to me. I used to read it avidly every day. In fact, I used to say to my members, will you cover my job while I go and sit on a chair because I want to study this paper? <laughs> the blokes used to cover my job on the car truck. I've always remembered that. And I'll be studying it. And in 1970, I was still a shop steward, I wasn't a senior steward. Me and this other steward, who was the Communist Party bloke who sold me the paper, we got together and said, right, let's call a joint meeting of our two sections. That was about 120 blokes. And we had a meeting at the lunchtime with 120. He chaired it and I spoke, and I spoke based upon what I'd been reading in the Morning Star. We had a unanimous vote that we'd strike if they tried to imprison us, <laughs> us two up the top table. <laughs> I always remember that particular meeting. But we went on as part of the shop stewards committee in the Rover to actually organise an unofficial one-day strike where we had a mass meeting and there was almost a unanimous vote to come out and strike against the threat to imprison the stewards. That's the way it was posed. So it was great. Everybody understood it, you know, at that particular mass meeting, 8,000 workers inside the factory, as we used to call it, under the hanging tree at that particular time. So the Industrial Relations Act eventually came into practice because the national union leaders... And Vic Feather was the General Secretary of the TUC, which all the big unions were affiliated to. Jack Jones was leader of the Transport and General Workers' Union. Huey Scanlon was leader of the Engineering Union, Amalgamated Union of Engineering Workers, at that particular time. They were the two biggest unions. They had between them probably nearly 4 million members. The AUEW had 1.5 million members. The TNG had 2.2 million members. And the Industrial Relations Act came in the TUC had refused to organise a general strike to bring down the Industrial Relations Act, but in practice, the Industrial Relations Act was a dead duck from day one. 
They couldn't implement it. It's one thing to have things written in law. It's another thing to be able to implement it. So, for instance, when the Industrial Relations Court came into being and the Engineering Union, shop stewards, some planter, I can't remember the details, went on strike unofficially, the Industrial Relations Court ordered the shop stewards to go back to work. When they refused to do that, they then ordered the Engineering Union to instruct their shop stewards to go back to work. When the Engineering Union refused to do that, the Industrial Relations Court fined the Engineering Union it might have been 50,000 or 100,000 pounds in 1971 figures. And on a casting vote of the president, Hugh Scanlon, the union voted to call a one-day strike instead of paying the fine. <laughs> and what happened instead? An unknown group of the City of London businessmen came together and paid the fine for the union. Why? Because they were shit scared. Because what would have happened? Scanlon and the executive call a strike the 1.5 million engineering workers would have come out and strike, and that would have, in effect, been a general strike. Such was the power of the engineering union, because if their members come out and strike in the manufacturing sector, the factories would have ground to a halt. They couldn't have been maintained. Many of them were part of the production process, tool rooms, tens of thousands of tool makers, skilled workers. They would have been on strike. And probably the union members like mine at TG, we wouldn't have crossed their picket lines. We would have come out and strike with them. There would have, in effect, been a general strike. And the more astute elements of the ruling class understood that. So they paid the fine of the union. Now, unfortunately, the TNG was also fined first £10,000 by the Industrialisation Court and then later on £50,000. And Jack Jones, unlike you, Scanlon, voted for his executive to pay the fine. But, you know, that was you know, minuscule, that amount of money for the big union like the TNG with 2.2 million members, nothing at all. But also, in September of 1971, the TUC General Conference took place. Vic Feather had been under enormous pressure throughout that period. He was booed at mass meetings because he refused to call a general strike. He went to Glasgow and a 10,000-strong demo there and refused to call a general strike. There'd been a 300,000-strong demonstration in London against the Industrial Relations Bill in February of 1971, I went down as part of a 100-strong delegation from our factory. And by them days, you were a delegation. You didn't expect the whole factory to come to London from Birmingham. <laughs> but the factory went on strike. The TUC didn't want to call it a general strike day, so they called it a day of action instead. But they never published how many factories actually came out and strike. I know our factory came out and strike. Probably Longbridge and other plants came out and strike as well. But we went down as a delegation to the demonstration. It was the Kill the Bill demonstration of 300,000. It was the most decisive, and it was primarily shop stewards. It was the shop stewards moving on the march. It wasn't just shop stewards, of course. There was lots of rank-and-file workers there as well. But it was the shop stewards moving on the march expressed on February the 12th, 1971, against the Industrial Relations Bill. So by September 1970, when the Industrial Relations was now an act, it was law, and Mr Donaldson was sitting up there in his bleeding wig. I always remember that picture of him, sitting in his wig in his court somewhere in London. The Industrial Relations Court is now in session, handing out fines all over the place and nobody was paying them, or somewhere and some wasn't. And the TUC conference voted that any union that cooperated with the legislation would be expelled from the TUC. And it wasn't an idle threat. I don't think Vic Feather wanted it that way. You can imagine what the debate was on the General Council of the TUC. I wasn't party to it. 
but the TUC conference of 1971 September voted to expel any union. And because if you registered with the Industrial Relations Act as a union, you got certain monies. You know, the government knew what it was doing. You know, to pay for your training and things like that. You pay for your training bill for your shop stewards, your health and safety reps. And I've always been opposed to government interference in trade unions, including the government giving in the trade unions the money. But they knew what they were doing. So they introduced this legislation. They had money bribes for the smaller unions who were a bit broke, no dead. But 32 of the smaller unions were expelled from the TUC. It had never happened before in the history of the TUC. 32 smaller unions were expelled including one of the print unions, Solgap, which is a very strong but skilled artisan union in the printers in Keenan Fleet Street. And I remember I went back to the Birmingham, well, I wasn't at the TUC, but I went to the Birmingham Trades Council the week after the TUC, and I moved that what the TUC did nationally, the Birmingham Trades Council should do locally. And we kicked out of that Trades Council the smaller unions whose national unions had registered with the Industrial Relations Court and the Industrial Relations Act. I always remember to this, my dying day, the delegates, there was only a handful of them, the smaller units, had to walk out with their heads held down and they were saying, it's not our fault. <laughs> it's our national union leaders and pastors have done this to us. So we said to them, go and bloody tell them. Anyway, so they did. And it turned out later, this is for your benefit of the listeners, one of the blokes who was kicked out by my resolution was a comrade in the militant. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> he was in Solgate. He was the branch secretary in Solgate in Birmingham. <laughs> but that's a side issue. I found out later. I apologised to the bloke. Well, I didn't know who he was at that particular time. So the Industrial Relations Act was in power, but it was never able to be implemented. The only time it had any real teeth was when it imprisoned five Dockers shop stewards called the Pentyville Five. And what happened there? The dockers were attempting to stop containerisation of the docks and they'd gone down and put a picket on a small depot in Stratford in East London and the Industrial Relations Court locked them up and sent them to prison and they were locked up in Pentyville Prison in London and from below there was a general strike developed. I happened to be on a uni course in York University at that particular time and we heard about this going on but there was across the country the dockers came out and strike. And waves of workers were beginning to come out and strike. And lo and behold, the Teddyth government found the official solicitor, a state bureaucrat who nobody ever heard of before, to release the five duckers. In other words, every time there was mass opposition from below, and the TUC, for the first time since 1926, met this before Teddyth, or it might have been just after, they voted the TUC General Council to call a one-day general strike against the imprisonment of the Pentyville Dockers, the five Dockers. But by then, the strike had already begun, and by then, the Dockers had been released, and of course there was tens of thousands outside Pentyville Prison welcoming the Dockers. It was a massive victory. And if you could say there was any particular day that the Industrial Relations Act ended, it was that day, in the middle of 1972, whose date I can't remember. And nobody ever, ever heard of what the hell the Industrial Relations Act or its Industrial Relations Court was up to from that day till it was repealed in 1975 by the incoming Labour government of Harold Wilson. It gives you an idea what happened as a result of mass struggle from below. The union bureaucrats would have gone along with every anti-union law that's ever existed if they'd been allowed to, but it was the pressure from below that stopped the finished tracks. 
Lots of lessons for the struggles of today there then. And perhaps we should just finish, Phil, by noting that since that time, when the Industrial Relations Act was defeated by workers' struggle, there's been a whole series of new anti-union laws which unfortunately have gone through without much of a fight and are still on the books today. A lot of them from Thatcher and then some more since the Tories came back to power after Blair, who of course himself did nothing to remove any of the anti-union laws. Could those laws also have been defeated and how can we overturn them today? Well, that's the $64,000 question that somebody once said. There's no doubt about it that every attempt to hamper the unions by legal means... The capitalists and its representatives in political power, the governments of the day, have been very tentative in how they approach it, little by little. Thatcher never introduced a whole series of laws that the Tory government of Boris Johnson has got at his disposal. It was bit by bit. They had to test out it. And one of the first laws that was introduced by Thatcher was limiting the right to picket. And that was like limiting pickets to six on an official picket line. Because up till then, if necessary, you had mass pickets. And that legislation was opposed in practice. There was mass pickets. Throughout 1984, when the picketing laws were in operation, the miners like 84 and 85 had mass pickets everywhere, didn't they? The law was there <laughs> saying it was illegal. But in Orgreave, where 8,000 miners came together and their supporters in a mass picket, the mass picket law was just smashed and broken. And the Thatcher government of 1984-85 had to depend on the brute power of the state forces, the police, to try and break the power of the pickets at that particular time. They had a much preferred if the workers had obeyed the law, but they didn't. So there was an attempt all the way through, and it was a bit-by-bit approach to the question of these laws. And it's similar laws have also, like, for instance, secondary picketing. I think it was the second bit of law, might have been the first bit of law, because up till then... You know, you could quite legally go and picket another workplace which had nothing to do with your workplace, but you might have wanted to say, as we used to, give you one example, there was a place, a small press shop in South Birmingham, and the workers there was trying to organise a union and they were getting nowhere, and they came to us. So we sent down 20 shop stewards and put a picket on the factory, and the factory had nothing to do with the car industry, <laughs> and that was quite normal. So secondary picketing, as it was called, was illegalised by Thatcher, but it was always bit by bit. And each time, the real answer to it was to mobilise the organised strength of the working class and to make those laws inoperable by actually carrying through and doing directly the opposite. And if the government had attempted to enact the law by saying, we're going to lock up people who turn up in excess numbers to a picket, then you escalate the action accordingly. That's almost a military analogy. So there's all sorts of ways you can affect the law, but in the end, it's a question of the national unions raising the idea to the members that this law is not in their interest and it's better to break the law than break the poor, to smash the trade union anti-union legislation by mass action in practice. And, of course, you don't loosely throw away the union money. After all, one of the threats of the anti-union legislation is if the unions don't obey the anti-union legislation, then their funds can be sequestrated. And it was sequestrated. The National Union of Mine Workers funds were attempted to be taken by the government in the 1984-85 miners' strike. But you can find a way around that. As somebody once said, a union isn't money, it's the members. But nevertheless, you have to take the issue of the intactness, including the finances of the union, very seriously. And each stage is, has to be a struggle. But above all, it's creating the condition where the national unions themselves 
you know, call opposition and mass opposition to the anti-union laws in practice and taking each stage as it comes. Well, as always, listeners, if you like what you've heard, donate to help fund us, recommend us to your co-workers and friends, and if you agree... Join the socialists. Thanks very much, Bill. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Bill Mullins speaking to James Ivans and I'm Lenny Shell. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? Now is the time. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for Works International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to the capitalists. You can make a regular donation or one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.